Well, as we begin this evening, let me very briefly mention that we have been going through a number of prophecies from the Pentateuch, uh, from the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we've been doing this in preparation to celebrate the Christmas feast. Christmas is almost upon us. I'm sure almost all of you can feel it. Almost all of you can feel the joy, the anxiety, the desperation, uh, especially those who, of you who have just gone through finals. This was finals week for many of you, I understand. Um, coming here to the end of Christmas, there is a lot of emotion and there is a lot going on. Now, Advent, which is this period, uh, these four Sundays, these four weeks leading up to the Feast of Christmas, Advent um, has been historically a time when we focus not just on Jesus coming uh, in his first incarnation, but as we think about his coming in his second, uh, his, his return. Um, as we think about Jesus coming again in glory and with all the clouds and the shout of the archangel and the trumpet breaking through the sky. And this, I think, as, as much as his first coming, often resonates with a sense of political necessity. Many of us uh, are aware that Jesus is coming back as king. He is coming back to rule. He is coming back to set up his throne here on earth. He is coming uh, to set things right. Many of us who have been following along since February, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, we have this sense of, you know what, things are politically fraught in this world, and they need to be set right. Now, this is a weird thing to bring up around Christmas time, because Christmas time is a time of joy and peace and love and family. Doesn't often sound like a time to really be bringing up politics, although inevitably, if you visit family, it often happens. <laughs> It can be a little uncomfortable. However, Advent requires us to talk about the political dimension of Christmas, to talk about the political dimension of who Jesus is, to talk about the political dimension of the kingdom and what this means for us as Christians and as believers today. Now, why am I highlighting this here on the fourth Sunday of Advent? A big part of it is because the readings that we had this evening come from Deuteronomy, which as I'm sure all of you are, is an immensely political document. It is a political document because as the fifth book in the Bible, it is the second giving of God's treaty with his people Israel. That is, that the way that the book of Deuteronomy is laid out, and probably the way the whole, those whole first five books of the Bible are laid out, is as a treaty document. The same kind of treaty document that, you would, have, that would have existed between Egypt and one of its vassal countries. That is, when a when a great king, when a suzerain comes and he makes a treaty with a small little country to give protection and aid and blessing on that country, and they in turn promise to obey him and to respect him and to honor him as, as their great king. This treaty would have been laid out in a document signed by both sides, document or copies would have been kept by both sides and we have countless examples of these kinds of treaty documents that existed in the ancient Near East. Deuteronomy is laid out as a book exactly like one of these treaty documents where God is the great king and this people are his are his new people his new uh his, his new vassal state of which he is ultimately king and responsible for, which means that Deuteronomy is a political document. It is a legislative text which lays out these are the obligations for both parties. Israel has its set of obligations, and God has his set of obligations. And ultimately, if either side doesn't uphold their end of the, of the covenant, their end of the treaty, there are consequences. 
there are sanctions. Um, if they're upheld, then there are blessings. This is basically how Deuteronomy is laid out. And it is in the heart of Deuteronomy that we see the prophecies, these types and figures pointing towards the coming of Jesus that express the political dimension, two actually, two political dimensions of who he is as our Messiah, as the king, as the prophet, and as the priest who is coming into the world. We're not going to talk about his priestly ministry that much. Priestly ministry is less political, but both the dimension of king and the dimension of prophet are fundamentally political. And so my thesis today, my big idea, and you can see it in the, in the handout that you have here on page three, um, I'm more or less going to be following this, this sermon outline. I'm trying to model today's talk after Glenn. I didn't put so many pages together, Glenn. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> But, uh, but I put a few here. You can read my translation and some notes I put on it, but I'm going to be following this outline. But the big idea here is that diplomatic relations between heaven and earth converge in the Son of God. What we're reading here in Deuteronomy chapters 17 and 18 is a model of how diplomatic relations is supposed to work between God and humanity between heaven and between earth and it has to do with this person that we call the son of god now when i say the son of god many of us also begin to immediately think about john chapter one and how in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning and this ultimately is revealed to be the son of god the son of his father jesus christ but the term son of god originates in the old testament as a very human title but representing a diplomatic relationship with God himself. And so what we're going to talk about today, and the question that we're going to answer, is how does Jesus's politics operate on earth in a kingdom that is not of this world? In a kingdom that, even though it exists in this world, it is not from it. I think we can see in Deuteronomy 17 and 18 some political arcs, some story arcs, if you will, um, that describe how these motifs of Jesus's kingship and his prophethood develop and how they converge in his life and in his ministry. And I want to then talk about what this means for us who share in his anointing and share in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. So, with that in mind, let's begin in, in chapter 17. In chapter 17, we see the princely story arc of the Son of God. We see a story arc that is centered around who he is as the royal figure or the princely figure, the kingly figure, as I have often described it. Let's begin, as we look at chapter 17, with a few basic main principles that we should be able to interpret this passage by. The first main principle is that when it comes to Israel, God is king. In fact, Israel does not have its own king for hundreds of years after the invasion of, of Canaan, what we now call Palestine or Israel or that little Psalm 82, where the psalmist says, thank you very much, where the psalmist says, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. And to whom is he speaking? He's speaking about the pagan nations around Israel. They are referred to as gods, as sons of the Most High. But of course, this is a reference not only to these pagan kings. You could also 
very controversially interpret Genesis 6 and the sons of God there as referring to these sort of tyrannical kings, but especially to the king of Israel. In fact, when God makes a covenant with David, what does he say? He says that the David's son who will sit on his throne forever will be a son to God and God will be a father to him. This is taken up in Psalm 2, for instance, when God says to the son of David, you are my son today, I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations of the earth your inheritance. Now, some might try to interpret this as saying there was a moment in which Jesus was begotten of God. Well, I don't think that's really what it's saying. I think what it's communicating is that to ascend to the throne of Israel is to be begotten by God in this sort of kingly kind of sense. And you could see something similar in Psalm 89 when the son of David is referred to as the firstborn out of all of the earth and as a son of God. So what is my point here? What am I trying to say? Is that the idea of a king being an image of God, being the spitting image of God, in other words, being a son of God is present in the in the world around Israel and in the text of the Old Testament. If we begin to look then at Deuteronomy chapter 17 as to how a king would then image who God is and what God is doing in the world, we see a few things. First of all, in verse 14, we can see that as the king, he was appointed by the people. However, he was chosen by God. Only God could choose the person that he was intending to be his image, to be his likeness among the people. We see that in verse 14. If we then look at verse 15 to 20, we can see that although he was supposed to be like his people, right? This likeness to his people is that he was chosen from among his brothers, from among the people of Israel. His primary attribute was that he was to be in conformity with God. He was supposed to be like God going about the business of God, going about the ways of God, embodying the heart of God. We see this because he was supposed to have a heart for the law, a heart for the law of God, and that law was supposed to be dwelling in his heart. One of the most interesting things about this whole passage is that he was supposed to go and make a literal copy for himself of the book of Deuteronomy. The book of this law was Deuteronomy. He was supposed to go and himself copy it out word for word. Now, this may have meant getting a scribe to do it for him. I'm not saying that he was the actual one doing the actual writing, but the point was is that he was supposed to make his own copy, and he was supposed to read it every single day. Now, this was just an evangelical habit of you got to read your Bible for 15 minutes a day or whatever it is. This was because he, as the king, was supposed to embody the image of God, and by embodying the image of God and ruling his people in ways that represented God himself, he needed to have the very words of God imprinted on his heart and written on his heart. And the only way for him to do that was to be meditating, contemplating, reflecting, and being saturated with the word of God day in and day out. Because as the king, he was supposed to do more than simply be a figurehead like we expect our royalty and sometimes even our heads of state uh, more generally to be. He was supposed to be a legislator, an executor, a judge, and a warrior, all wrapped up into one. If that's the case, well, then what is the temptation? The temptation for a king, as for most political leaders even today, is realpolitik. You guys familiar with this term? The idea of, well, you got to do what you got to do. 
This is the political reality and we have to accept it and we have to work with it. The temptation that we even see in this passage is that the king is going to be seduced by the need for more political firepower. Where do we see this first? Well, we see it first and that they say only, in verse 16, only do not let him amass horses for himself. Now, this is a weird thing for most of us today because we don't think of, you know, our primary temptation of getting a lot of horses. He goes on to say that the second temptation is getting a lot of wives. And I know very few people, probably even fewer among you, who find polygamy a real source of temptation. I mean, how many of you have been like, oh, what I really want is like 10 wives? Nobody wants that. But (laughs) it was a real temptation for him back then. Why all of these things? Why? Well, horses would have meant political and and more importantly, military power back in the day. Horses allow you to go fast, they are strong, they can pull chariots. And they were one of the primary forms of te- techno or one of the primary technologies of war back in the ancient Near East period. They were also difficult to breed. They were difficult to acquire. They were difficult to keep alive. And in order to make them most effective, you had to have metals, the types of which were very difficult to craft and forge. Horses, in other words, are symbols of technologies of war. And what God is saying is, don't try and get a lot of firepower in order to wage war on your enemies or even to defend yourself. Secondly, women and wives in particular would have been instruments of making treaties and alliances. That is, if you were going to make a treaty or an alliance with Egypt, the way that you you sealed it is that you sealed it in blood, you sealed it in marriage. You would take one of their daughters as your wife, they'd take one of your daughters as their wife, and you would have children, and when you have interrelated uh, royal families like this, you're much less likely to go to war with each other. You were sealing those treaty alliances, and this would have been a constant temptation. We see this especially in the life of King Solomon, who otherwise started out as a pretty good king, and then what happened? He got a lot of wives. And those treaties began to pull him down. And the reason for this is, I think, even more visible when it says, let him not amass silver or gold for himself. Let him not heap up riches for himself. Why? Because we can turn our hearts to money and to wealth and to riches as a way of protecting ourselves and buying off the people that we need to buy off. Having wealth is a measure of political power. But in all of these cases, not only can silver or gold be be a way of controlling people, what do we ultimately end up turning silver and gold into? Fashioning them into idols. What do foreign wives end up bringing with them? Foreign gods and and foreign idols. These treaty alliances, these connections with foreign powers that would have been needed in order to um, establish military dominance. They all bring with them the tendency to worship the power of our own hands. And so what happens? The realpolitik of the day, kings would stop relying on God. They would start running after power in other forms. And in the end, they would be mixed up in other gods. And this is what we see happening time and time again. We see Saul and Solomon struggle against the temptation to try and do things without God. Even David ends up, you know, doing things like taking censuses, uh, taking wives for himself, like Bathsheba, that end up becoming snares in different kinds of ways. 
We see the failures of Ahab, of Manasseh, of Jeconiah, as time after time, kings in the Old Testament, even the sons of David, even the descendants of King David, would turn their hearts away from the law of God, and their hearts would be lifted up over their brothers, as Deuteronomy says, and they would run after things besides God and his protection. They would begin to think that they themselves were the kings, rather than God himself being the ultimate king of Israel. And what it did, where did this land them? It landed them in exile and in the curse of David's line. As King Zedekiah would be the last remaining king in Jerusalem. And when Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, came back, he was not king. In fact, there would not be another king in the line of David until we get to the son of Joseph, that is, to Jesus. So when the true king comes, when Jesus comes, and he inherits the right to royal princehood from Joseph, and as he descends directly from David through his mother Mary, David himself inherits the title of son of God. He becomes the king that Deuteronomy is describing here, and the kind of king that Israel had struggled to have, even with the best of its kings. Of course, you and I, with the benefit of hindsight, also realize that this king, this king, this Jesus, is the son of God, not only because he is the rightful heir of David, that he is the one who can fulfill the duties listed out in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He is the son of God because he is God the son in the strangest twist of the gospel, that he, in fact, is the son of the Father from before all ages. He is the eternal son of the Father who has been sent by the Father to be the king of his people. He is not only king because he is descended from the right people here on earth. He is, descent, he is the king because he is the only begotten son of God and therefore king of all creation. Hebrews 1 and 2 Make it clear that he is the exact imprint of his father. He is the one who has the law in his heart and who, as Psalm 40 would say, Behold, I have come to do your will because the scroll of the law, the scroll of your book has been written in my heart and it is my delight to come and do your will. And yet, at the same time, as Deuteronomy indicates, he becomes like his people in every way. He is born as a Jewish peasant, He is brought up in the ways of the law. He eats, he drinks, he experiences pain. He has highs and lows, joys and sorrows like all of us. But having been chosen by his father, how does the arc of his kingly story end? How does the prince of his people end? Having been appointed by his father, chosen by him to be king of his people, he is eventually rejected by his people and killed as a lawbreaker. His kingship comes to an abrupt end on the cross. As people march by and say, well, he saved others. He can't save himself. This man thought that he was the king of Israel. What in the world happened to his kingdom? We're going to put a pin in it there. I'm sure most of you know the end of that story. But let's talk about the prophet. Let's talk about the prophetic story arc of the Son of God before we finish up the story here. If we move to Deuteronomy chapter 18, we then see that there's another aspect of the political dimension in the book of Deuteronomy that's happening. Deuteronomy 17 talks about the king, but here we hear about the prophet, and the prophet is just as political as as the king, if not more so. Again, let's go back to basic principles. First, God is king. God is the king of Israel, and yet, if we assume that there is a 
human governance of God's people, there needs to be some way of communicating between God and his, and his earthly images, his kings. We see in the Bible that God in heaven is often described as having a divine counsel. These divine, uh, divine or, or more properly angelic beings, which sit in counsel with God. When God is called the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of Sabaoth, those hosts are the divine armies, the divine council in heaven that takes deliberation together. This is on display in curious places in the Old Testament. For instance, in 1 Kings 22, when the prophet Micaiah describes what's going on in heaven, you, you get this sense that, yes, there's God there, but then there are all of these other angelic beings, and he's taking counsel together, and he's saying, all right, well, who's going to go and try and get Ahab to go into battle? And so they all kind of debate and talk about it. That apparently is the way things work in heaven. We see this in Job 1 to 2, whether this is, you know, a mythological story or whether this is actually happening. The Israelite people understood from their brief exposures to life in heaven that God, in the midst of his angels, in the midst of the counselors that he has there in heaven, is speaking and is talking. I think this might also explain sometimes why God says, let us go down and confuse their languages, for instance. What is he doing? He's speaking to his angelic counselors there. One of the things that becomes clear then is that prophets in the Old Testament, those who bear the office and not just the gift of prophecy, are those who have been inducted into the divine council, into those angels in heaven, and have been sent as the divine ambassador from the court in heaven to the earthly court of Israel. They are political ambassadors, diplomats, sent from heaven to earth. And that their initiation into this core of angelic beings, into the angel of the Lord, into being an angel of the Lord, happens through an experience of theophany. That is, when they come to know God face to face. This happens for Moses in Exodus 3, when he meets God face to face in the fire of the burning bush. This happens to Joshua, for instance, when he meets with the angel of the Lord who tells him to take off his feet. He is standing on holy ground. This happens, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah, worshiping in the temple, sees the Lord seated on a throne. This happens when Ezekiel comes face to face with the chariot throne of God, and he has a really hard time describing what it's like. It's really fun to read if you want to read Ezekiel chapters 1 to 3. And Jeremiah himself, who also had this kind of experience, he complained that the false prophets were the ones who had not sat in the divine council. Go take a look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 18 to 22. The false prophets were those who said, I have been sent from God, but who had not actually been inducted into this divine council. Now, in saying this, I am distinguishing between a gift of prophecy and the office of prophet. This is one that is even made sometimes in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. Daniel, for instance, definitely has a prophetic office or a prophetic, prophetic gift. He sees dreams. He hears visions. He is able to tell the future. But Daniel has not been sent by heaven to the court of Israel. Daniel has a different gift and a different office to follow through on. You could even say this with respect to David, because while David has a many prophetic gifts of being able to, for instance, address his son in poetry in the Psalms and be able to tell us what the Messiah is going to be like. David is a king, and therefore he needs prophets like Samuel and Nathan sent to him to represent the divine counsel to his court on earth. 
So why am I saying this? Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. What does it say about the prophet? The prophet has been chosen and sent by God to the people. The people do not get to choose their prophets. They don't even get to appoint them. There is no human ritual or ceremony for making a prophet. God alone sends his prophets. The prophet stands in direct relationship to God. Moses brings up the theophany that happened on Mount Sinai and says, remember what happened on Mount Sinai when God's people and the event that makes them his people, that that moment where they stand face to face with God on Mount Sinai. They say, we can't endure it. We can't bear it. Moses, you go up and speak to God face to face. Well, this is the hallmark of what it meant to be a prophet was to go and to speak God, not in vision, not in dream, but face to face there on Mount Sinai. He says, God is going to raise up someone like me who's going to speak with God face to face from among you, and you are to listen to him. We can see that they bear God's authority. They are almost like God's uh, power of attorneys, right? When they speak, whatever they say in the name of the Lord, that, that, uh, that wonderful phrase, you know, thus says the Lord, is the characteristic expression of a prophet. Whenever they said that, it was supposed to be literally God's word. And if you did not listen to them as the divine prophet, you were guilty for not listening to God himself. And it also meant that their authority could not be counterfeited. We see that the prophets, for instance, were put to a very easy test. If they, what they spoke came true, well, they were true prophets. If it didn't, then they weren't. You didn't have to listen to them. And the sentence for being a false prophet was, in most cases, death. So what did this mean for the prophets? It meant that being a prophet was a very frustrating office and job. I think that's fair to say, right? Even the best prophets had very difficult tenures. Samuel, perhaps the most notable prophet to come after, after Moses, uh, the one who rebuilt the commonwealth of Israel and established the royal line, first in Saul and then in David, he had a very difficult relationship with the, with the kings around him. The prophet Nathan, who was sent to David, in general, on good terms with David, but even he had to go to David and confront him and say, for instance, thou art the man. You are the one who has offended God and offended your fellow man by killing Uriah the Hittite and sleeping with his wife Bathsheba. Isaiah was on generally pretty good terms with King Hezekiah, but even there, they were a little bit, it was a little bit difficult. We can see what happens, though, when things get much worse than that. You look at the rocky tenures of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, for instance, sent to the court of Israel. Now, you'd say, well, why didn't King Ahab have Elijah killed immediately? Well, that would be like killing God's ambassador. That would be like destroying your diplomatic relationship with heaven itself. And so Ahab kind of puts up with Elijah, even though his wife um, Jezebel didn't have much interest in putting up with him. Elisha trains a school of prophets, a kind of diplomatic team there in Israel, trying to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. But ultimately, in the end, it was a very frustrating endeavor. And what you begin to see is that towards the end of the kingdom of Israel, the diplomacy is on the rocks. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is killed between the altar and the threshold. Jeremiah is thrown in wells and left to rot. Ezekiel uh, tries to do his ministry in some really weird ways out in Babylon. And you even see people like Malachi come 
um, whether that's his name or whether that's the title of, of the book as the messenger of God, he announces that God, yes, is still the, his, he is still the king of his people, but he is ending diplomatic relations for a while. There is 400 years or so of silence between the end of the last book written in the Old Testament and the coming of John the Baptist. It is when John the Baptist comes that here in the story arc that the office of prophet is renewed, and it is he who certifies the prophethood of Jesus as he beholds the Holy Spirit come upon him. And as he hears that voice saying, you are the Son of God, you are one of those angels, one of those messengers, one of those who have been sent from heaven as one of the ambassadors from the divine council. The Son of God, of course, we know from hindsight, is God himself delivering the Father's message. You read John 1, it is clear that the one who is the Son of God is God from the beginning and has been sent with a message. Jesus himself says that he brings the very words of his Father. What the Father has spoken to him, he is then relating on to us. And it is in the person of Jesus that we see the, the two sides of the political dimension in, expressed in Deuteronomy come together. At once, Jesus is both the king of Israel, and he is also God's ambassador to Israel. And this means that when the king and the ambassador are one and the same person, the kingdom itself has come in its entirety and in its fullness. Jesus is at once heaven and earth. He is the prince, he is the prophet, he is the king. And we see this in the parable that Jesus himself tells of the vineyard and its tenants. You remember the story. A man has a vineyard, he leases it out to tenants, and one by one, <laughs> they kill the messengers that the owner sends to the tenants trying to collect his rent. He sends them, they beat them, they dismiss them, they send them back. And finally he says, well, you know what? It's time for me to send the one who is at once the proper owner of the vineyard because he is my son. He is the heir of the vineyard, but I will send him as my messenger. And so what do they do? They say, let's kill him and we can have this thing forever. And so Jesus himself, that ultimate prophet, like all the other prophets who spoke out against the evil of the kings of Israel, he was rejected. His words were dismissed, and he was hung on a cross until he was dead. Now this leads me to my third point. This present story arc, these sons of God who are raised up following what happens to Jesus, I think... I think we need to talk just a few minutes about what this means for us, who are the sons, the children of God. Jesus, of course, does not stay dead. He is declared to be, according to Romans 1-4, the Son of God, as he has been raised by the Holy Spirit and the power of God. In coming back to life, God sets his seal on Jesus and says, yes, he is the king, and yes, he is my prophet. Yes, he is the one who, to whom and for whom is all authority in this world, and he is also the one who comes and brings my message and my will and is here to teach my people. Jesus, having united heaven and earth in his authority as the prophet king, then does something really odd. His disciples come to him and they say, well, when are you going to establish your kingdom? Now that you are both prophet and king, all together at once, the court of heaven and the court of earth, united into one, when are you going to show all of the entire world your 
power, your authority, your goodness, and your rule. Jesus says, it's not for you to know when that happens. In the meantime, I'm going up to my father. This court that Jesus has established on earth with his 12 disciples, who having seen the theophany of the Son of God raised from the dead, become themselves kings and prophets, filled with the Holy Spirit, and receiving his anointing, become prophets and priests and kings like he is. They watch him go up into heaven. And now the politics get really complicated, don't they? Because in the Old Testament, you could very clearly identify this is God's people and this is God's politics. This is God's administration. This king is God's literal representative on earth. Now that literal representative has gone up to heaven and begun to reign, but has done so in heaven. And while the kingdom has come in its fullness in the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who has died for our sins and paid for our offenses with his blood on the cross, it means that his anointing office is carried out from above and anointing us to continue on his work, but in a way that turns on the distinction between the old and the new creation. That is, we have to take into account that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and our life has been renewed in him, and as we then hear his call to go and serve other people, much as he has served us, he does not send us out as kings to rule in this present world. He does not send us out to try and claim authority for ourselves and to try and lord it over others. He sends us out in his image to serve as he has served. What this means is that if we are kings, we are kings like him, and we are kings in the order of the new creation, in ways that don't make sense necessarily in this world, and that lead perhaps to our own crucifixion. Even when we are at our most diplomatic, even when we are at our most, at our most congenial and collaborative with the powers and authorities of this world, and yes, Paul says that we are supposed to pray for those authorities. He says that we are supposed to submit to the authorities of this world. At the end of the day, we are kings and queens of a new creation. This means that we are going to experience persecution. We are going to experience crucifixion, perhaps even. We are going to experience the ire of a world that has still yet not understood what it means to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, even though he is Lord of all. It means that while we are to fight as kings and queens in this current world against evil, it means that we should expect to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus by experiencing disappointment, by experiencing attacks on our own persons. It means that in this present life, our prophetic role, our prophetic role, as Paul says, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as ambassadors of reconciliation, as ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ, that his lordship is being proclaimed over all things, allows us to participate more as his prophets in this world than perhaps as those who wield power as kings and queens. But it does mean that here today, we have the opportunity to exercise this office. I'm running out of time, so I don't really have much time to talk about specifically some of the 
some of the other details about this, but I would encourage you to read on page three. There's a little excerpt from the Heidelberg Catechism about what it means that when Christ is called anointed, what it means for him to be anointed as prophet, priest, and king. But then the follow-up question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, but why are you then called a Christian? It's because I share in his anointing. And I'm anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as the living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. We exercise his authority as king and as prophet. We do so in his name, but in his way, understanding that we are going to experience suffering, crucifixion, death, whether as king or prophet in this world. But knowing that when he comes again, when he, the king, appears and sets all things right, that what we have done in his name is going to lead to the salvation of many, is going to lead to the redemption of the world, that we are sharing with him in his rule, in his reign, and in his message. There's a lot more that I wanted to say and share with you today, but again, running out of time. But let me conclude with the question that you have there on page three. How will you serve as a member of the kingdom's earthly diplomatic corps? I began by talking about Advent, how this is a season when we're thinking about Christmas and we're having lots of feel-goods and eating gingerbread cookies and all the things that, at least in this part of the world, we often do. Back where I used to be, it was a lot of fireworks and uh, loud noises. But what does this mean today? How, in this Christmas season, can you be a part of the diplomatic corps heralding the fact that Christ has come and Christ will come again, that the king and the prophet has come, that the politics of Jesus has already been made present and powerful in this world, and yet, having set our eyes on Jesus in heaven, that we are able to say, you know what, we are waiting for something even greater now. Now is the time for us to communicate his rule and reign and to do so by sharing his good news and his gospel. I want to encourage you to sign up for that task. And if you're going to sign up for that task, I'm going to encourage you to do what both prophet and king would have needed to do in Deuteronomy. And that is to remember his word, to conform yourself to it, to spend time in it, to study it, to read it, to memorize it with your whole heart, and to apply it as you seek to be his spokespeople, to be part of his diplomatic corps, and in the months and in the years ahead. Thank you all, and God bless you.